I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And how do you know what's true or what's false? What's right or wrong? How do you know what you know? I'm guessing you heard it somewhere. And for you to hear it, somebody had to say it. If it sounds like I'm being a little too clever, it's a reflection of the times in which we live. Because for us to be able to figure out what's true, in order to form a more perfect union, we must be able to speak with one another freely. Our guest this week fights speech restrictions in the very institutions that should be bastions of free expression. Greg Lukianoff is an attorney, New York Times bestselling author, and the president and CEO of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, or FIRE. He is the author of Unlearning Liberty, Campus Censorship, and the End of American Debate, Freedom from Speech, and FIRE's Guide to Free Speech on Campus. Most recently, he co-authored The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure with Jonathan Haidt. This New York Times bestseller expands on their September 2015 Atlantic cover story of the same name. Greg is also an executive producer of Can We Take a Joke, a feature-length documentary that explores the collision between comedy, censorship, and outrage culture, both on and off campus. Greg, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Well, you're very welcome. To start off, per FIRE's website, quote, FIRE's work to protect fundamental rights on campus concentrates on four areas, freedom of speech and expression, religious liberty and freedom of association, freedom of conscience, and due process and legal equality on campus, end quote. And I'd like to spend a good portion of our conversation today talking about FIRE and its mission and the work that you do with the organization. FIRE was founded in 2001 by University of Pennsylvania professor Alan Charles Kors and Boston civil liberties lawyer Harvey A. Silvergate in response to hundreds of letters they received from people on college campuses around the U.S. who felt their rights were being violated. But as far back as 1957, the Supreme Court has found that free speech and academic freedom are protected on college campuses. So I guess my question to you to start us off is, why in academic settings where one would think people would be especially aware of and educated on matters of America's rights and legal protections, do individual rights so often seem to be trampled? Mm -hmm. Well, and thanks so much for having me on. I'm I'm really excited to finally get to chat with you. Big fan of a lot of your previous guests. So it's a tough one because I always have to begin from this very simple framework. Free speech and free inquiry is the anomaly historically. It's not something, basically that situation normal is tribalism, censorship, trying to coerce conformity. Living in pluralistic societies where everybody has a right to their own opinion is a cultural invention that is very hard to maintain. So left to our own devices, human beings tend to be very tribal, very self-certain, very ideological, sometimes even superstitious, actually almost always, at least to some degree, superstitious. So maintaining a community that has such kind of odd norms as everybody has the right to their own opinion, that we make a meaningful distinction between words, uh, opinions, and actions, that we have a, a bright line rule between violence and speech, where we have an idea that, that we're not all that clever in the first place, that we're much more ignorant than we tend to think we are, and that we have to have very complex systems like in academia to figure out what the word really looks like doesn't come naturally to us. 
So a lot of times when people think of like the new censorship on campus, they talk about it as if it's sort of like a new idea. The idea is essentially that we've gotten to a higher moral frame and we can now we now know what's true so we can shut things down. But that's not new at all. That's ancient. <laughs> Thinking that we know what the truth is, is ancient. The innovation is realizing in the grand scheme of things, we don't know much. So that's a very long winded way of saying what we're seeing is sort of like a regression to the mean of human society and that the academic environment is a very hard one to maintain. And it requires viewpoint diversity. It requires great respect for norms of free inquiry. It requires a tough stomach. And what we've seen happen o- over the many decades is that, you know, in the 1960s, there was a free speech movement on campus. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, a lot of us get into this work is we were very moved by the free speech movement. But primarily, a lot of us were moved by the free speech movement in the gay rights movement and the civil rights movement and the women's rights movement. And the one on campus was actually a little different than the free speech movement off campus. On campus, the argument wasn't ever we are a conservative institution and we don't want these crazy left-wing opinions on campus. Academia has never been particularly right-wing. It's actually always been, at least most colleges have always leaned at least somewhat to the left, actually usually at a three-to-one, two-to-one kind of ratio. What the argument really was about, and I'm embarrassed I didn't know this until later, was how much you wanted to politicize higher education, how much you wanted to actually bring political opinions on campus. And there's a good argument for being able to, because there is an argument that all things are political. But unfortunately, this was also misused. There are true believers in free speech on campus. A lot of them are some of my heroes. But it also got misused in a way that sort of pushed towards more ideological conformity. And by the time you get to the 80s, only about a good 20 years after the free speech movement began on campus, you see a complete 180 on a lot of campuses where they now think, thought free speech was the problem, that bigoted speech or racist speech or hurtful speech was what had to be stopped. And for understandable reasons, too, in the 1970s and early 1980s, universities became a lot more diverse in terms of everything from race to sexual orientation to class differences. And that created real conflict. Unfortunately, campuses went very quickly to the, okay, speech is actually the problem now. And the funny thing is, this is completely typical. When you are in power, almost always, you eventually will see free speech as a threat. The majority, the people in power find it inconvenient, find it a threat. And that's sort of the historical norm when it comes to free speech. I've been talking a long time. I I can backtrack on any of this if you want me to. Oh, no worries. We're going to get into it. But uh, to go to something I heard you say at the start of your statement, the idea of reverting to the mean, that freedom of expression, freedom of speech is the anomaly rather than the standard. And so it seems like something like our constitution, our cultural norms are really the only bulwark against the reversion to the mean. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that if someone said something offensive either to you or you overheard it from a second or third party that you dueled them to the death. Yeah. The idea that words are violence or words lead to violence is a time-worn idea. And as so, old as time itself. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so this idea that this whole words or violence thing is a rather new meme couldn't be further from the truth. Nope, it isn't. And it's something that I, I really try to try to remind people of all the time because they tend to forget is that, and, and it's, it's funny, watching, watching students come up with the, this idea like it's something that they just thought of. It's like, wait a second, free speech is a social construction. And it's like, yes, yes, it is. It's, it, like, like a lot of things in society, well, most norms at least, they're all inventions to a degree. They're social technologies. 
is just one of the smartest ones we've ever come up with, this strong distinction between speech and action. I think it was Sigmund Freud who said something to the effect of civilization began when the first man hurled an argument rather than a stone. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, that's a great saying. It is. And there are some scholars who think of it this way. There's this idea of, of cultures of honor, which is a good chunk of human history, where to a degree, it's up to you to enforce moral norms that essentially you have to show I will not be wronged. I'm not waiting for power to police wrongs against me. And that's where you get things like dueling, you get revenge killings, you get feuds and all this kind of stuff. It's a norm that actually in a really, unfortunately, kind of makes sense in small communities where there is no nearby authority to help you out. And so at the beginning of the Republic, Aaron Burr and, and Hamilton still had some of the culture of honor there. And they Hamilton died in a duel with Burr. There was still dueling, but it started to die off. And it was replaced by something that has been called a culture of dignity. And one of the hallmarks of a culture of dignity is it has a very strong distinction between speech and action, a very strong norms of you are entitled to your opinion. I talk about these idioms that people have, that idioms say a lot about what the values of your society are. And I think for, I'm Gen X, and growing up, it was pretty common for people to say things like, to each his own, it's a free country, everyone's entitled to their opinion, mind your own business. All of these norms are culture of dignity, where essentially, I respect your autonomy, even if you show me that sometimes you're not that responsible with it, that's your business. And these are good norms. No norms are perfect, of course, and all come with downsides. But they're good norms for a democracy, and particularly a pluralistic one, that essentially, if you're, if you're saying that I really want to have people who are radically different living in the same country together. These are very sensible norms. And the Supreme Court echoed these time and time again. There's a wonderful line, one man's vulgarity is another man's lyric. There's a line from a case called Cohen v. California. It has this very strong idea. Also in a, in a great another Supreme Court case, freedom to differ is not limited to things that do not matter much. That would be a mere shadow of freedom. I love that line because it's like a zinger, almost like they're cracking a joke, but it's making something so clear. And all of these norms, they're good for pluralistic society. What we're seeing now, and this, I think, is unfortunately part of the result of having too little viewpoint diversity in higher education, is that you get much more tribalistic thinking. You get much more group polarization. You get this sense that every good person agrees with me on the following moral issues, and it tends to kind of spiral out. And the less sort of dissent you have in that, the more it takes on sort of the quality of religiosity. At the same time, we're dealing with something that is called moral dependency, that essentially as societies get more comfortable, as they get more wealthy and prosperous, the idea that you can spend more time with your kids, you can spend more time being a more intensive parent, all of these things are kind of great, but they create a greater expectation of sort of supervision. So what we've seen since the 90s is a situation that we've set up, all with good intentions, in which people born, you know, after a certain year, let's say we talk about Generation Z, so let's say 96 or after, their entire experience of life has been, and to be clear, I always have, feel like I have to be clear about this. The problems we're talking about in the book are overwhelmingly about, you know, largely upper class kids. This is really important to me because I wasn't one, <laughs> and I know that the issues faced by uh, bottom quartile, bottom half, actually even bottom three quartiles are decidedly different than the kind of students who go to elite colleges. And I want to be very clear about that because it is important to me. But if you look at the kind of students who go to these disproportionately influential colleges, they have intensive parenting at a very high rate. They have a K through 12 environment that is very interventionist, that sort of polices what was once considered 
interpersonal conflict. They have colleges that have entire staffs devoted to that, where they tell you, you know, if you see something, say something, essentially go to the bias report team. And then they have corporations that have very strong human resources departments that are or have become much more powerful um, just over the past 20 years. And what this leads to and what, why this scares me in a way that I wasn't expecting it to until I started really researching the book is that when you're looking upwards to power to solve everyday conflicts with your fellow citizens, that's not training someone to live in the stable anarchical system of a pluralistic democracy. That's training them to live in a system that's much more top-down, much more authoritarian, and much more alien. Well, actually, no, not actually alien at all to the Founding Fathers. The Founding Fathers knew exactly that system. Every authoritarian system that came before, actually every system that came before America, with very few exceptions, was largely authoritarian, was largely top-down, with some king or potentate at the top. And what they were trying to establish was something much more radical, much crazier in a sense, that would be diffuse responsibility, individual responsibility, uh, something that allowed for genuine pluralism. And what I see happening on campus now, it scares me on a lot of different levels. And what I fear we're teaching students are not the habits of a free mind, but the habits of people who are always looking to one, what does authority think, but also two, how can I use authority to benefit me? Yeah, if I didn't know better, I would have I would have assumed that you and a previous guest from a couple episodes ago, Lenore Skenazy, um the <laughs> the the president of Let Grow and mm-hmm. the founder of Free Range Kids, I would assume you two were in cahoots or at least compared notes before coming on because a lot of what she discusses and a lot of her advocacy revolves around giving children more independence at the ages of 10, 11, 12, 13 to do even small things like start a lemonade stand or bake a cake without too much parental supervision. And it seems like a lot of the anxieties that parents carry around in their minds and on their shoulders kind of drip down into their children to the point where children at that age don't feel like they can do anything on their own without a parent or adult supervision nearby. And then it seems like that, and this is no surprise to you based on your work, that kind of then goes into the colleges and then the administrative state or the administration at the college then kind of replaces the adults that were around when the kid was 12, 13, and 14 years old. Oh, can I, can I just say I could fully disclose my relationship with Lenore? Of course, yes. <laughs> so Lenore Skenazy was someone that I sought out maybe 10 years ago at this point, a long time ago, because I was very interested in her free range kids work. And I wanted her to speak at our student conference for college students. And it was funny because at first she didn't really see the connection between her free range kids work and college students. But once she thought about it some more, she really was like, whoa, I I see it now. Like a lot of these sort of helicopter parenting habits are, of course, following the kids up through college. And I'm very proud to say that I introduced her to Jonathan Haidt and to Daniel Shuckman, who are the founders of her organization, uh, Let Grow. Daniel originally was thinking that Let Grow should be part of my organization, FIRE. But Lenore is the, this should be Lenore's gig. She's incredibly funny. She's incredibly wise. And she features very heavily in Coddling the American Mind. She was one of the experts that we consulted for that. So I've I've known her for a long time. She's great. She's extremely funny. And I think her work is extraordinarily important. You and I are in complete agreement on that fact. But to to reference something you said earlier, one man's vulgarity is another man's lyric. It's a shame no one could have told that to Tipper Gore in the 90s regarding (laughs) regarding rap albums. BMRC, man. (laughs) That's true. But it does take me to a 1973 Supreme Court case. I think I'm pronouncing this correctly. Papish versus Board of Curators. I usually pronounce it Papish. Papish. Um, There we go. Yeah, I'm not totally sure how you're supposed to. Her name is Barbara Papish. Okay, well then, Papish versus the Board of Curators. So, and in regards to that case, I think I I just kind of want to go back to something you said, where 
we have historical examples of what happens when a culture of dignity is replaced by one where if you say something offensive, I'm going to challenge you to a duel and kill you. Mm-hmm. We have many historical examples of that. They're in our history books. We hopefully still teach them to children. Well, and we it's have- still happening, by the way. Culture of honor is still with us. A, a lot true. of the murder in any given country can... It's interesting when they do studies of, of places where there's high rates of murder, one of the best signs is, is there a culture of honor where essentially people are, are feel like they have to defend their own reputation? It's still with us. No, that's absolutely true. I mean, even modern gang warfare. I mean, yep. that's not the aberration historically. That's yep. the norm. That's the norm. That's Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, yes. Uh, yes. One of the most famous incidences of gang on gang violence. Yep. But when we look at all these historical examples that we hopefully are still teaching children today, and we look at all the case law that is on the books that repeatedly establishes the ability for students on college campuses and even high school and middle school campuses to be able to express themselves, even if it's vulgar, why do we seem to keep having to relearn these lessons over and over again? And why do these universities, I guess my larger question is, is why is an organization like FIRE so necessary when these universities know that the case law exists? Yeah, it should not be necessary for FIRE to exist. Universities should be policing this stuff on their own. They should be advocating for free speech, academic freedom, and due process on their own. They should be unapologetic about their small liberal traditions and the difficulty of, of knowing the world simply as it is, the arduous process of the production of knowledge, all of this kind of stuff. But unfortunately, they're also human institutions. They're also mega corporations, which take on interesting attributes all of their own. They're very tribal in the sense that particularly among administrators, viewpoint diversity is extraordinarily low. It's even worse than in in the professoriate. Among professors, particularly of the younger cohort, there's very genuinely dissenting voices. And this is something that going into coddling the American mind, you know, I thought that maybe we were still at like a four to one liberal to conservative ratio on these campuses. But it actually turns out, particularly at some elite campuses, it's zero in some departments. And some of the ones that try to say, oh, we have some conservatives, like at Stanford, it's like, oh, they're actually at the Hoover Institution, which might as well be like on the moon as far as students are concerned. So you have the problem of sort of cohesive moral communities when they start actually uh, going beyond the sort of open-minded idea that anything is possible and that we have to make it a habit to disagree and to think of thought experimentation, devil's advocacy to make our thoughts better, that when they start deciding that they have collective moral beliefs, it starts acting a lot less like a educational institution. And also, why do these cases not have as much effect as you would think? The case law is still very strong for student free speech rights, and the case law is still very strong for uh, professor free speech rights. But those only apply, uh, for one thing, to public campuses. The First Amendment applies to public campuses through the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, just to be technical. And and those cases are strong. So when we're able to get into court with some of these, we tend to win. Sometimes sometimes you lose on standing, which has been a problem, which is more of a procedural thing. But when it comes to private colleges, it's much more mixed because the First Amendment does not apply directly to private campuses. It applies indirectly to some private campuses in the state of California, partially because my alma mater, Stanford Law School, tried to pass a speech code. It got the state Senate 
very angry. So they passed something called the Leonard Law, which applies First Amendment standards to non-sectarian private schools in California. What the state of the law there is actually a little mixed up. Private universities are also supposed to fulfill their promises of free speech and academic freedom. And most non-religious schools in the country promise freedom of speech and academic freedom. So they should be held to those standards. And in some jurisdictions, they very much are, including New York State, including in the, in uh, Massachusetts, for example. The case law is pretty strong on them being held to their free speech promises. In other places, it's not. So the case law is good at defending student and, and professor rights at a public college once they get to our attention. But unfortunately, you know, we know we're just the tip of the iceberg. We got 1,500 case submissions last year, which is a lot given the number of most influential schools is not all that great. But uh, we know that most of the times when you have students being punished for what they say or professors being told not to you know, publish that thing, that, that happens behind closed doors and in informal settings through social norms, for example. So one thing that we really tried to do is figure out what the actual atmosphere for free speech is at individual campuses. So this year we started doing something that I, wasn't even possible when I started at FIRE. We've been surveying individual campuses to ask students, do you feel comfortable speaking your mind on this campus? And also on the other side, do you think violence is appropriate in response to free speech? And we did the top 55 schools in the country. We're self-funding to expand that to 150 this year because I just think this is so, so important. But we found some really interesting things about how comfortable students felt actually speaking their mind on campus. The one place in the, you know, in all of human society where they should feel absolutely actually bound to give their point of view and to contribute to the discussion. Unsurprisingly, and particularly along political lines, they don't feel so confident they can speak. One thing that I wanted to just touch on real quick was how, and I think rightly so, this discussion is awfully framed as a liberal versus conservative issue. Like the idea that, whereas when someone will say like, oh, there aren't that many conservatives on campus or professors, or there aren't that many conservative professors on campus, or Mm -hmm. conservative students don't feel comfortable speaking up in class. The liberal argument that some people on the left make is that, oh, well, you know, why are you so worried about conservatives? I mean, do you agree with what they have to say? But I think what you said is really instructive, which is the idea of cohesive moral communities and the problem that happens to speech when there's any one kind of moral community that has too much power. One of the examples that I just can think of off top of mind that is personal to me was when I was a practicing Christian back in college. And there were these kind of informal enforcement of speech boundaries that I remember kind of experiencing when I was in youth group or Bible study or just hanging out with my friends, this idea that like, hey, like don't question too much, right? Because we don't want to think that you don't believe in Jesus, like that sort of thing, where it felt like even just talking about potential ideas or questions that I might have had felt verboten because of this kind of culture of cohesive moral community. Mm-hmm. It's so necessary for people not to frame this as a conservative versus liberal thing because we don't want any one side of the aisle to think that they have to carry the mantle of an idea that should be important to all Americans. Yep. I'm politically liberal. I worked at the ACLU of Northern California. And it's so frustrating to me watching people, particularly what happens time and time again is people don't know all that much about the field, but they've been sort of vaguely told that this is just a bunch of right wingers who don't really, who just lost in the culture war and are feeling sore about it. And they don't look at the actual cases. Like I said, we had 1500 case submissions last year. I've looked at thousands and thousands of these cases. 
And if it's important to people who think they care about free speech that people on their side of the aisle are defended, we defend liberals all the time. Liberals are getting in trouble on campus all the time. A lot of times, frankly, they're getting in trouble from other liberals. Sometimes they're getting uh, in trouble due to the conservative outrage mob. Sometimes they're getting in trouble just because they're creating a, a public relations headache right. uh, for the university. Sometimes they get in trouble just because they're complaining about parking <laughs> on campus. There's something for everybody in the actual cases. I compiled a short list of some of the cases that FIRE is currently working on, just as an example oh, of what we're talking yeah. about. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I wanted to kind of dig into this a little bit because I've seen FIRE be labeled as a conservative advocacy group. And so I just wanted to take some of the cases that you're working on. University of Utah, media policy restricts student employees' right to speak to journalists. University of Mississippi, professors contract non-renewed following public criticism of school's record on racial equity. University of Rhode Island, student threatened with discipline for appealing a parking ticket. <laughs> Skidmore College, student government refuses to recognize progressive Zionist club. University of San Diego, law school professor investigated for blog post about COVID-19. And finally, the last one I got was East Tennessee State University, basketball players denounced for kneeling during the national anthem. Mm -hmm. And so I'm posing the same question to you again, really out of just frustration. It's like, yeah. you can't spend more than five minutes on FIRE's website and see the kind of work that you and your team are doing and come away thinking that it's some kind of conservative shill. Yeah. And so I don't understand. It's just, <laughs> sorry, Greg, it's just frustrating because like these, these should be values that we all care about. You can imagine how frustrating it is for me. Uh, honestly, like trying to explain this back when nobody was paying attention led to a psychological breakdown for me, which led me to be hospitalized as a danger to myself, which led to me getting into cognitive behavioral therapy, which led to coddling of the American mind. So like I've, I've been through it. I'm more resilient now. I, you know, I, I practice some anti-fragility there and I've gotten kind of used to the culture war, but it's exhausting. I talk about this knee hit idea that not enough hours in the day, it, something that, that I realize we run into a lot. And one of the ways that we've learned to debate on campus, unfortunately, is that if you can label something conservative, you don't have to think about it anymore. And that is just way too useful. So I've watched people when they get a sort of inconvenient fact, they're like, OK, I'm going to put this over there. It's a dumb way to argue in the first place. Uh, to be clear, it frustrates me that I ever participated in that way of thinking about things that I don't have to listen to conservatives. I better not read Thomas Sowell, for example. And then I finally did. And I was like, this is not nearly like the radical this is uh, if you don't know who he is he, he's a black conservative who writes stuff on sort of like the international differences among groups in terms of wealth and that kind of stuff it takes an international view just like my my family would my dad's russian my mother's british but the whole political aspect of it when i have spent so much time and energy defending the rights of very left-wing students and professors and people will still be like oh that conservative group and it's kind of like you're only saying that because someone wanted you to believe that so you don't have to think about us. First of all, frustrating to begin with because you should care what people all over the spectrum say. You shouldn't have that filter on your head. But at the same time, and people come at us routinely on Twitter saying, well, where's fire on this case? And it's like, we're literally quoted in the article that you just sent around that you didn't bother to read. And I've seen this happen time and time again, and it shows the intellectual laziness of this argument. A lot of times people know about the cases involving people on the left getting in trouble because we took them public. And what kills me about this is that, yes, you should be concerned about people getting in trouble on your side, on our side. You know, I still consider it. Still consider it. 
and you should be concerned about these free speech weapons, these censorship weapons being used against you. But I really wish you'd go to the next level and believe that these are supposed to be for everybody to take seriously the possibility you might at least occasionally be wrong or that your ideas can be sharpened in debate and discussion with people who actually disagree with you. And the fact that we always have to be kind of like, well, I watch people and sometimes in other organizations almost like spend more like 90% of their time being kind of like, well, we're not conservative, we're not conservative, and really trying to sort of like convince people that I'm on your tribe. And there's some part of me that's so deeply exhausted with that. It's like, like you said, just go to our website. And if that doesn't convince you, I just can't. There's not enough hours in the day. I've got to get back to my work of oftentimes defending political liberals and your friends, but at the same time being dismissed by a lot of you because we're presenting an inconvenient truth about problems in higher ed. Yes. And to your point earlier about your journey to cognitive behavioral therapy, I remember that that was actually our kind of initial interaction on Twitter. For a brief period of time, I wanted to pursue that topic with you on this episode because your journey and mine are rather similar in that regard. I was thankfully able to avoid hospitalization. But if I look back in that period of time from about 2013 to 2015, when it was at, when it was at my worst, it was a little touch and go there. But cognitive behavioral therapy was so foundational in my recovery along with a little help from Lexapro. But when I thought about talking about it with you, I was like, you know what? I don't know if I'm quite ready to stare at the sun just yet. Sure. <laughs> but, no, um, I totally get it. But I, t- but I totally, I'm, it is something that's so worth discussing and how these kinds of issues can lead to kind of mental breakdowns like that. So perhaps we can return to it in the future because I do think that 100%. all these things are interconnected. And I think that ultimately this language of trauma, this language of abuse and microaggressions and all these other things can create an environment that makes people very susceptible to this kind of yeah. m- mental breakdown, I guess you could say. And can I just explain to listeners what we're getting at here? Of course, please, please. So, you know, I had this breakdown. I was studying cognitive behavioral therapy to help myself talk down to the sort of exaggerated voices in your head that tell you you're broken and that everything's going to fall apart and that you're not competent to run your own life and that you should be afraid all the time. And it's amazing that just by, you know, figuring out by labeling, being able to label sort of your thoughts as distortions and sort of talking yourself down. And to be clear, you have to get in the habit of doing this, that that actually works for anxiety and depression. But I was doing this at the same time working on campus and being like, this seems like we're shouting at a generation of kids, do engage in mental behaviors that will make you anxious and depressed, almost guaranteed. And in 2007, I said to myself, well, thank goodness, although administrators seem to be selling this, students aren't buying it. And then in 2013, like lightning struck, we started seeing a lot of students showing up, mouthing these arguments where essentially everybody should be, there should be overgeneralization, there should be labeling, there should be all these distortions that if you do them, you are going to be not just less able to handle free speech, you're going to be depressed and anxious. And we wrote about this in 2015, pointing this out, that this was both bad for mental health and bad for free speech. But we didn't have the stats there at the time to really definitively say that mental health was going south for young people. And then my goodness, did it ever go south? And I think that at least in part, it's because we are teaching a generation of students the habits of anxious and depressed people and then being like, why are they so anxious and depressed? It's like, well, because we're telling them to be. Yes, absolutely. When I first started doing cognitive behavioral therapy in the beginning of 2014, and my therapist gave me that like that list of cognitive errors, you know, it's like a list of <laughs> That's 17, everything I knew. <laughs> yeah, 17 different things. I was like, oh, wow. Okay, so I'm checking off a lot of these. But more importantly, I just realized that a lot of the circles that I was hanging in at the time it was kind of critical social justice, critical race theory circles 
circles that had kind of made me unwell. When I got this worksheet from my therapist, I was like, oh my God, you could go down this list in some of these groups that I was in at the time. And just like you said, it would be like uh, if you mirrored every one of these, but made them a positive trait. And again, that's not to take away anything from the real trauma and discrimination and aggressions that marginalized communities face, which I actually want to talk and address in this talk. But right before we get there, I want to talk about something that you cover with height in Coddling the American Mind. And Connor Friedersdorf covered in a 2016 Atlantic article, the kind of concept creep of these psychological phenomenon like, quote, abuse, bullying, trauma, mental disorder, addiction, and prejudice that now encompass a much broader range of phenomena than ever before and reflects, quote, ever-increasing sensitivity to harm. Now, as I mentioned, I spoke with Lenore about this very topic for young children, but if college students are now sharing this expanded view of trauma, right? If a traumatic event, it could now be something where someone says something like, where are you from? If that is now considered potentially traumatic, and students have a much greater sensitivity to perceived harm. When we think about something like case law that involves harmful speech with case law that decides what speech is allowed on a college campus, one of the mitigating factors is if it disrupts campus order or if it interferes with the rights of others. This is established case law, as you're well aware. But what I'm worried is, is as the concept creep of what is considered trauma expands, might the definition of what disrupting campus order and interfering with the rights of others also expand to the point where the 1973 case, Papish versus Board of Curators, no longer applies because yeah. the idea of what trauma and harm is has expanded to the point where kind of in the same way where general welfare and the Constitution meant something entirely differently in 1800 than it does today. Yeah. Could something similar happen where case law could actually be ex post facto rewritten? Yeah. Well, no, that's something that I had a, a lovely debate with my friend Ken White at Reason.com about free speech culture versus free speech law. And Ken is skeptical of the term free speech culture, more or less because he, he sees it used sort of politically a lot of times by right wingers to, to justify, you know, not very coherent arguments. But at the same time, I think it's led him to a conclusion that doesn't make any sense. Free speech culture, of course, is where free speech law comes from. The law doesn't just fall from heaven. There was a very hard fought and hard won idea of to each his own. You have to follow your own conscience. All of these kind of small L liberal ideas did not come easily, naturally, quickly, or painlessly. A lot of them came from European experience in absolutely brutal religious wars that cost, you know, I think there's an estimate something like one third of the population of Germany is estimated to have died in some of these. It's just absolutely horrific. And it was these norms that we were lucky enough to be uh, to be founded at a time when these things had some popularity in intellectual circles. I do think that the founding fathers, particularly James Madison, was an extraordinarily good psychologist and studier of human nature when he when he set up a lot of the structures that we have in government. It, it deals with things like bias, for example, and for motivated reasoning and the checks and balances really kind of help with a lot of human failings. But also the Bill of Rights is designed to help limit the power of government to recognizing that you want to avoid tyranny, for one, of course, but also that you have this theory, essentially, about individual pursuit of happiness and individual rights. But it wasn't very strongly protected. Free speech wasn't very strongly protected in the law until about 1925. Did that mean there was absolutely no free speech in the country? No, absolutely not, uh, because there was a strong free speech norm. And it was that free speech norm, for example, that anti-abolitionists, when slave owners tried to ban abolitionist speech in the North, they failed. 
There's a book called The People's Darling Privilege by Michael Ken Curtis that talks about how strong the free speech norms were. And it was only when the, they started to fall apart, you know, to some degree in the late Victorian age, but in World War One, that the Supreme Court finally had to more or less dust off the First Amendment and say, OK, this actually matters now because we're putting people in jail for, for example, we put basically the equivalent of Bernie Sanders. We put UGV Debs in prison. Um, he actually ran for president, I think, in 1920 from prison for what he said, including a speech that was actually at times kind of beautiful. Eugene Debs was a, was a socialist candidate for presidency, saying that don't let them tell you that you are fit for only to be cannon fodder. You know, like telling people it's like you have a higher calling than to than to kill yourself in the name of this country in war. And there was mass arrests of people for anarchical opinions, communist opinions. Also, before that, free love opinions, sexually body opinions. And the reason why people like us grew up believing that free speech was sacred was because we were lucky enough to grow up in a time where free speech culture and free speech norm was, uh, and free speech law was probably at its height in human history, which sounds crazy, that it was very strongly protected both in courts and a very strong popular idea of people being entitled to their own opinion, that you don't have a right not to be offended was something that was the norm, particularly in comedy up until what feels like 10 minutes ago. And so that those changes in the way intellectuals thought about free speech, but also the way the culture thought about free speech have an interrelationship. And it was a positive feedback loop for the 20th century. What will happen eventually is if we change these norms, if we think of uh, perversely, if the sort of disproportionate power, the weird power arrangement that you have in higher education dupes people into believing that free speech is the argument only of the bigot, the bully and the robber baron, which historically, by the way, makes zero sense. But in campuses where the other side is in charge, that's what they really try to argue with a straight face without recognizing that they themselves are the wealth and power and, and the people in charge, that eventually, if you have lawyers educated in this system, that eventually the case law itself will start to erode. But the good news is case law as it is right now is not the problem. Case law is actually very strong, and I think free speech law will remain in good shape at least for a while. But it doesn't matter all that much on a lot of campuses that essentially if you can lose your position for a tweet that you made 10 years ago, if you can get removed from being admitted to a school for something you wrote in MySpace when you were 14, or that you can lose your tenured position because after studying your 20-year history, we could find 15 kind of offensive things you might have said. That means who cares about the law? The culture has fallen apart when it comes to free speech. And what I've seen happen on campus in the last seven years, but particularly in the last year, the free speech law is almost irrelevant. The conformist culture, it doesn't just believe that it's right to be conformist. It's evangelical. It thinks that people that disagree with it should be shut down. And meanwhile, the kind of people who are actually getting shut down don't even follow the ideological stereotypes that you, they don't always follow the ideological stereotypes you'd expect. But that's partially because we've so undermined sort of the folk belief in free speech. People don't think they even have to pay attention to it anymore. Yes, that's absolutely correct. And I mean, I guess the hopeful silver lining, which we can discuss towards the end to hopefully leave the listener with at least some positive feeling, I would imagine the silver lining is it seems like America's relationship to freedom of speech is a bit of a yo-yo mm -hmm. or a seesaw, I guess you could say, whereas sometimes it takes a shock to the system for then either the culture yep. or the legal system to kind of respond and make our idea of freedom of speech more robust. I mean, just to, to kind of cap off the Papish v. Board of Curators, because I'm realizing the audience has no idea what we're talking about. Sure. The Papish v. Board of Curators ruled 
in favor of a college student who drew a cartoon of cops <laughs> raping the Statue of Liberty, yeah. right? Which isn't exactly a conservative cartoon. Yeah. But it seems like in the wake of all those kind of rulings and cultural norms and as a response to things like the McCarthy era in the 50s and the kind of constricted speech of the early 1960s, mm-hmm. it seems like the 70s and 80s and 90s, the childhood you had and to some extent that I had in the 90s and early 2000s was a response to that constriction. And hopefully in the next decade, we begin to have an expansion of these norms again in response to what we're seeing now, like what you're saying, getting fired from a job or getting your college admission rescinded for something you did when your brain wasn't even developed Mm -hmm. at the age of 13 or 14 years old. Yeah. Yeah. The biggest silver lining to me is simply that free speech works really well. And I have a different idea of the value of free speech that is very much informed by the fact that I I focus on campuses. And it's an extremely expansive idea, but I also think it has the benefit of being true. I call it the pure informational theory of free speech and sometimes also the lab and the looking glass theory. And it's very simply this. A lot of times in debates about free speech, there's a sort of hijacking of the idea of truth, that essentially it's only about establishing what is factually true. And if you're saying something untrue, you should have no free speech. To me, that's a very primitive and limited understanding of the value of free speech. It's not that marketplace of ideas isn't true and it isn't part of the debate of free speech, but it's only a little tiny sliver. What I mean by the pure informational theory of free speech is that there's this wonderful thing called the project of human knowledge. And basically it relies on, at one point in human history, we discovered that, wow, we thought we were so confident in all the stuff we knew. And it turns out when you start testing this stuff, we know like nothing. We're incredibly ignorant. And it's called the discovery of ignorance. So even though it's like the enlightenment sounds like, oh, we all suddenly knew everything. No, it was actually that we became sophisticated by knowing in the grand scheme of things, we know like nothing. And it's a really powerful, profound truth about reality is that reality is harder to know than we think. And we're always deluding ourselves to thinking we know more than we actually do. But one of the most fundamental parts of reality as it is, one of the hardest things to know is very simple. What people really think and why is an essential fact about humanity. It's extremely important in democracy, of course. It's directly important in a democracy. But it's also important from a psychological standpoint, from a scientific standpoint, to understand the world we live in. And there's something very primitive about saying the crazy conspiracy theory that you have is one that I think is wrong. So therefore, I shouldn't know that 50,000 of you have this crazy idea. That seems detached from the goal of knowing the world as it really is. So very simply, it's always important to know what people really think and why. And right now, campuses, the place that should understand this better than anywhere, is really trying to convince itself that maybe we are safer if we know less about what people really think and why, and helpfully, we can convince ourselves that they don't really think that anyway, or it's irrelevant that they think that. It's a very unsophisticated, but very classic way to the human society's approach speech. The much scarier idea is that this conversation is never really over. We are always going to need to know what people really think and why. And that means robust protections for freedom of speech and beyond truth-seeking, but with truth-seeking, because you either might be wrong, you might be partially wrong, or you're just holding your beliefs by accident. This is what I call Mill's Trident. You're holding your beliefs by accident and you've never been tested in them. So therefore you don't understand why you hold them. So you hold them the same way we, we hold prejudices. So the best defense of freedom of speech is it's hard to run a society effectively and efficiently 
if you have a ban on people giving their God honest opinion. So actually, that reminds me of one of my favorite Mark Twain quotes, which is probably apocryphal. When I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much the old man had learned in seven years. (laughs) And you reminded me of that quote, because that whole idea of we should only be able to say what is true is one of the most absurd things I could imagine thinking of. Because if you look at the arc of history, especially when you think about marginalized communities, the idea of us knowing what is true, (laughs) as if it's some kind of like concrete thing that never changes and never moves. If you could only say what was true, I mean, some of our greatest civil rights leaders would never have been able to speak based on what was considered true at the time. But it's just like you said, sometimes for us to be able to discover what is true, what is really, truly true, we have to be able to have people with different opinions go against each other. There's this video that I watch repeatedly once or twice a year. I just love it. It's the Baldwin versus Buckley debate at Cambridge. Yeah. I'll link it in the show notes for anyone. It's just phenomenal. But you have these two men who were coming at this question around black civil rights and the black Americans' relationship to the American dream at Cambridge at, a, I think, an all-white audience of British students. And Buckley and Baldwin are arguing over this topic, right? Now, I'm more sympathetic to Baldwin here, but I think it was good that Baldwin was able to go up against Buckley and specifically that Baldwin had an audience in which he could share his ideas, which in 1960, I think, which is when this debate was held, Baldwin was a bit of an underdog. We look back at him now and we realize that he was on the right side of history. But at the time, he was trying to widen the spectrum of what we considered to be true. And that idea of that, <laughs> that we should only be able to speak true things, mm-hmm. I, mean, it, I mean, you would think in our society, we would understand the fallacy in that thinking. Yeah. Jonathan Rausch is coming out with a book called Constitution of Knowledge that I, I'm getting behind like it's my book. <laughs> I'm so wonderfully jealous of it. He's one of the great thinkers about free speech of the last probably at least 50 years. He wrote a book called Kindly Inquisitors in 1993, which influenced great book. every free speech thinker I know. And the book is talking about the idea that truth is essentially social, that essentially you don't figure things out without talking to each other. Meanwhile, as I'm reading this, I'm reading Joe Henrik's work on the collective brain, that essentially human beings are only smart because our culture is smart and that we create cultural systems that allow us to actually exchange information and to learn things over time. And all of these things are sort of complementary to each other. And this idea that you only have the right to speak the platonic form of truth Objective truth is just silly. It was amazing watching. There was a statement that came out of Yale called the Woodward Report in the importance of free speech and academic freedom. And it's beautiful. And it's basically saying, making this epistemically knowledge humble idea that we don't understand the world all that well. And it's an arduous process and all this kind of stuff. And that even battling falsity can get us there. And, and actually only bat- battling to a degree ideas that are wrong or experimental will get us there. But what people don't remember is there's a response to it. And it's amazing watching kind of like the sort of postmodernist argument that's essentially truth does not exist, only power and rationality is like a justification. And therefore, I believe the following 50 things and we should do the following 50 things. And you're always like, if you don't think truth exists or rationality exists, then what is your basis for those 50 things? <laughs> like, is, is, are you guessing? You think it would be nice? Like, what? how did you actually get to those? And meanwhile, all of these fit in the kind of small circle of truth seeking. When you look at actual human freedom of expression, it's mostly about preference or commenting on what things are around you are like or whether or not you like somebody or what you thought of a show. Sometimes people think this stuff is like BS, but for the same reason that people sort of diminish the social importance of gossip 
And when we look into societies and we try to dismiss the idea that gossip is important, it can be, of course, incredibly nasty. But at the same time, it's a way of policing society by creating a consequence to doing things that would harm your reputation. We're part of a a system, a knowledge system that is so much more complex that sometimes I think activists on campus even begin to understand. I know we're getting uh, a little bit close to close. You want to talk about the free speech and marginalized communities. I would love to be able to get in my thinking on that. Yes. So in regards to that idea that we've kind of spoken on here and there over the course of our talk about how Protecting freedom of speech uh, is especially important for marginalized communities, whether they're sexual minorities, communities of color, or any other community that often can feel out of place or can feel yeah, marginalized in some way. I want to just go back to what is kind of a, a rather, I suppose, infamous incident in the realm of freedom of speech on college campuses, which involves that 2015 video of Yale professor Nicholas Christakis, which is you know, kind of infamous now, right? It embroiled him and his, his wife, Erica Christakis, in a bit of a fallout. She was a fellow Yale faculty member, and uh, she wrote an email in defense of college students' freedom to wear the Halloween costumes of their choice and to resolve issues of offense among themselves. Now, in that video, which I'll link to the show notes for anyone who hasn't seen it, it is a bit of a tough watch. Nicholas is seen on campus arguing with students. He's kind of surrounded by students who are quite angry at him, who are insisting that the university should be a home where they feel safe and that the burden of confrontation, education, and maturity should not have to be placed on the offended party. Now, I've personally heard countless stories from close friends, women and people of color who have had to weather daily insults and unintentional indignities in the workplace and in their personal lives. And so there was a meme that was going around the time that that video came out in 2015, that this generation of kids are generation snowflake, right? Mm. But if we are going to steel man this idea. And by the way, I'm very much on the record that I hate the term snowflake. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I dislike it too. Well, I dislike anything that is dismissive in that way, right? Yeah. Because, it, because just real quickly, because it's the same line of thinking that says, well, why should I care about a conservative, right? Like what, yeah. you, what you're doing when you say something like that, when you write someone off as a snowflake, or you say, I don't really care because they're conservative, you're not arguing with the idea you're not arguing with the actual argument. You're just dismissing it. So I guess you're giving yourself an out. Exactly. There is one thing that is funny, though. The original meaning of snowflake was the one that we learned as kids, which is that everybody is unique and special like a snowflake. Yes. And it's funny because like that meaning is absolutely true. <laughs> yeah. The later nasty meaning, I, I, I just think is unconstructive and lazy. No, I completely agree. But if we're going to steel man that perspective, right, yeah. that, that college campuses should be a home where people feel comfortable, where they feel safe. I know that microaggressions is a meme and the ideas like, where are you from, et cetera, et cetera. But people will point to that br- those bridge too far examples. But I think that it is really important to say that it can be very difficult sure. when you're someone who is from a, a minority religion or background of any kind, of whatever background you might be, it's hard to weather those insults and it's hard to weather those indignities day to day. So I guess what would you say, what would FIRE say to students or to people outside of school who feel like when it comes to issues like freedom of speech, freedom of speech sounds like a really great thing if you're a white dude, Mm -hmm. right? But if you're someone who's not in a position of power, whether it's societal or actual academic or positional power, why should someone have to weather all of that day after day after day? I think this unfortunately comes from a profound misunderstanding of free speech that makes perfect sense to anyone who's attended a elite liberal arts college, that I think they're being miseducated about free speech. 
by an institution that cannot recognize its own power and privilege. It instead feels guilty about it and, and distorts what the role of free speech and academic freedom is. So I'll go all the way back to you know where free speech comes from. So I do find the argument that free speech protects the powerful to be just strange because power has always been fine. <laughs> so people will point out free speech. They'll try to make the argument. This is where I make the bully, bigot and robber baron idea. Essentially, like this is the way it seems to be taught in K through 12 now is that free speech is the argument of these three categories. But historically, rich people didn't need free speech. They were rich. Powerful people didn't need free speech. They were powerful. They were protected by virtue of their power and their wealth. Once you started having democratic or semi-democratic institutions, you didn't need some special exception for free speech to protect your rights. You needed 50% of the vote, 51% of the vote, depending on the system, or just a plurality. So the majority is always protected. Power is always protected. Wealth is always protected. And the only reason you need a separate idea of free speech is for unpopular ideas from unpowerful people, from people who are not able to protect themselves, and from minority opinions. So free speech, and particularly the First Amendment, only existed to protect minority opinions. Now, it doesn't seem that that was something that mattered all that much in American history because there were entire classes of people, and including African-Americans and women, who were not yet protected. That being said, more people were protected by freedom of speech and more people had the vote in, say, 1800 than had in 1750. So, you know, progress works slowly and frustratingly, but it's never going to all happen at the same time. The story of the 20th century largely is taking these incredibly powerful human rights ideas and trying to spread them in the face of new totalitarian movements like communism, Nazism, and that kind of stuff. And what allowed the civil rights movement to happen, what allowed the gay rights movement to happen, what allowed the women's rights movement to happen was freedom of speech becoming strong in the law and becoming strong in the culture. Those, those two work together. Because to be very clear, there were attempts to have a women's rights movement decades before a civil rights movement for black Americans way before. And they got shut down because they didn't have free speech. Free speech only exists to protect minority rights. Now, why doesn't it feel like that? It's because the institutions that a lot of people have grown up in, in K through 12, their norms are completely opposite. That essentially they want to be show that they're sensitive. They want to show that they care. But that means that the power dynamic is completely flipped. So the majority opinion is let's try to speak this one particular way. So in a sense, there's a power inversion going on here that does not reflect what American society is really like. And campuses, to a degree, they're acting as power. They are enforcing a lot of their norms. And if you have a minority point of view that disagrees with what the norms of higher education is, you are likely to be punished no matter what race you are. And I see this time and time again. Minority students get in trouble on college campuses for speaking their mind constantly. But it has to be something that violates what are largely and overwhelmingly upper class, and to be honest, largely white norms at some of these very fancy schools. But yeah, minority students do get punished routinely for stepping out of line according to a lot of these upper class norms. So free speech exists to protect minority points of view. Now, when it comes to what happened with Christakis, I was actually the one who videotaped that. And one of the things that I think falls out of this discussion is that in an effort to be as sensitive as possible, we're so hesitant to say that the students were being unfair. At a certain level, you, you cease treating these people like people. And basically, that's what people saw. They saw people being unfair to somebody who was defending his wife and trying to like keep his cool in the whole thing. That kind of actual engagement 
in society, being a fellow democratic citizen is going to mean that you're also going to be held accountable for if you did something that you thought was kind of unfair to the person. So it, it is difficult to watch, but at the same time, the hesitance to actually say, it's like, you know, if we think of these as students, and if things had been reversed, those students would have been expelled for surrounding and shouting at, at a professor of a different race, saying that actually some of this ganging up on people is not okay because it has good motives. Everybody has good motives in the history of censorship. Everybody thinks they're doing the Lord's work when they're trying to burn naughty magazines or eliminate comic books. There's not a case where people wake up in the morning and say, in the name of evil, I will go about my day. People always think they're acting with the best intentions when they try to shut down free speech. But the people who are hurt the most when free speech goes away are the least powerful. Yes, absolutely. And that is such a good thing to remind people of over and over again. And we will have to keep doing it until the end of time, I imagine. Absolutely. It's uncomfortable because we have a very strong desire for conformity, whether we like to admit it or not. That essentially the idea of living in a harmonious society of pleasant agreement at some level appeals to a lot of us, but it's not overall healthy. Right. Well, I mean, that's why Western societies are considered weird, right? To uh, Mm -hmm. quote that book title. Now, there are so many other things that I could talk with you about, whether it's bias response teams, the idea of hate speech versus free speech, the dear colleague letter and fires work in that regard. But I want to be sensitive to your time. I want to ask you the final question that I ask every guest. And I'll put it to you because I think it is very relevant to the work that you're doing with fire. We're limited as individuals in all sorts of ways, Greg. We're limited in our time in our energy and often in our capacity for empathy. Even the most well-intentioned and caring person can't be thinking of every other person, every other group of people all the time, even when your work involves thinking about them in case law like fire. It's impossible. So is there someone or a group of people in your life or in the world at large right now that you would like to take a moment and offer empathy to? Oh my goodness. Hmm. As far as empathy goes, I do think that we are placing, there are two groups that I feel like really suffer in this whole sort of free speech on campus debate that get no credit. And one big one are people on the spectrum. We have a lot of people show up at fire conferences who are like, listen, there are a lot of rules to how you're supposed to talk at these schools. And to be, again, they're largely, people like to hear this, but they're largely upper class rules about how you're supposed to talk. And I am on the spectrum. I don't get social cues all that well. And I'm constantly saying the wrong thing as far as people are concerned. And I get in trouble sometimes. And the fact that utopian systems never work well with diversity. And this is something that really I would also like your listeners to understand. And that means diversity of all kinds and particularly expressive. You know, the idea that kind of like I don't get the cues and the cues are really important here. I'm going to get in trouble. And we see a lot of cases like this. I also worry a lot. And we've seen a lot of cases involving. And this is close to home because my father is a refugee and my mother is British by way of Ireland. It's mildly confusing. But the um, is international students. They show up a lot of times being like, wow, there are a lot of landmines here and I don't fully understand all of them. And I'm talking just like I would at home and, oh, wow, I'm getting in trouble. I should probably just talk to people who aren't so easily offended. So I I do see international students run into problems with this a lot because they don't know what the landmines are for upper class, highly educated United States. Of course, my father is Russian. So Russians come and they think 
Russians oftentimes like to make fun of us for our politeness. My father would say, you know, as a kid, politeness is a form of deception, which is true to a degree. And they think it's absolutely, in some cases, hysterical, like how how careful we are about what we say when there's sort of like a Russian tradition of being brutally honest and you just have to get over it. So I do think that in this kind of goal to have these kind, compassionate, empathetic cultures, we're actually not being very empathetic to people who are from different national origins from the point of view of neurodiversity. And I get to see and talk to these kids sometimes. And they really, you would like to have friends who have different expressive styles. They're, they're attracted to the idea of having good conversations. And, and it's not just conversations, it's about actual friendship. But we're creating a lot of barriers to people being friends across lines of difference. That leads to group polarization. But also, you know, from the empathy standpoint, it also just leads to loneliness and sadness. Yes, that's such a great point. The idea that speech regulations and cultural norms can make a lot of people feel left out, specifically groups that I imagine the people who are enforcing these cultural would like to speech help. regulations would like to help. Yeah. But because they are not aware of them, probably because the people who these speech regulations frighten don't speak up. Yeah. They don't actually realize that they're marginalizing the very communities that they seek to unmarginalize. And I did want to add one thing to the argument about why minorities should care about free speech. And it relates very much to my whole project of human knowledge, the lab and the looking glass idea, is that there is a simple, painful fact that you're generally better off knowing the world as it is. And the entire project of academia supposedly is to put a tremendous amount of resources to know the world as it is. And it's a lot harder to know the world as it is than we like to think. We don't want to. It's uncomfortable. But you're not safer for not knowing what people really think. And to be frank about it, you're in greater danger if the people think horrible things and you have no way of knowing. As Harvey Silverglate, the guy who brought me to fire, a civil liberties lawyer up in Boston, you know, former president of his local ACLU, said, I want to know who the Nazis are in the room so I know who not to turn my back to. It's a very stark way of looking at it. But I do think that we have this foolish idea that if we can just get people to not say things that we think are antisocial, that they will go away. But the truth is what happens when you do that is you don't change anyone's opinion by saying they can't say it. In fact, for a certain personality type, you actually convince them that maybe, wait a second, maybe I'm onto the truth. And then what happens if you can't say it in polite company or with people who disagree? then you only talk to people who you agree with. And what happens there? Social science is very strong on this. You get stronger in those beliefs, you might get more conspiratorial, you might get more tribal, you might start believing crazy conspiracy ideas because you think everyone's against you. And doesn't that kind of sound a little bit like the society we actually live in at the moment? So I do think that there is a very basic idea that if we can just make people stop saying bad things, everything will fix itself. And it works exactly the opposite way. On that knowing who the Nazis are in the room point, I think when it comes to ideas and speech, we should advocate for a policy of open carry so that you can understand who's carrying the weapons. <laughs> so you know who to be wary of. Yeah. But Greg, I want to be sensitive to your time. And I really appreciate you coming on today. I'm so grateful for the work that you're doing and the work that FIRE is doing. Because I mean, as we've learned in this conversation, the ideals of freedom of speech and a free society in which we can share our thoughts with one another is something that has to be continuously fought for forever, lest we return to the mean. So thank you for your time. Thank you for your work. And I hope to have you on again in the future to talk about we could go on for hours and hours. So thank you again. <laughs> Absolutely. Real pleasure. 